And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The topic of today's sermon is the church reformed, always reforming. And that saying, the church reformed, always reforming, first appeared in 1674 in a devotional book by a man named Jodicus van Lodenstein. And as a key figure in the, Dutch, in the Second Dutch Reformation, van Lodenstein wanted to see the members of the Dutch church, which had been infected and, and affected and been born out of the Reformation, he desired them to continue to pursue Reformation in their lives and in their practices. And he and the other Reformers had been witness to the terrible aberration that was and is the Roman Catholic Church. And what he and the other reformers saw was when they looked at church history, what they saw was that from the earliest moments within Christianity, Orthodox churches needed reformation. These men were able to look at the papacy, the selling of the indulgences, the political and the corporate manner in which the church, the so-called so bride of Christ, was handled against the Word of God, and they knew Reformation needed to happen, which it did, and it needed to continue to happen. Before we move forward in thinking, our thinking about a continued Reformation, let us first determine if, in fact, this is biblical. Again, everything I've telling you guys before, we need to question everything that is told to us. And it needs to be filtered through the Bible, not what a man is saying to you or what a woman is saying to you. But it needs to be filtered through the Bible. So we need to filter this through the Bible. Does the Bible actually say that we need reformation? And if it does, how does it apply to us? And why should it matter to us? We know that since all things are created by God, through God, and even for God, as told to us in Romans 11.36, and all things happen for the glory of God, the sole deo gloria, because He is God, because He is the Word that has become flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, because He has given us His Word, which provides all that we need, as told to us in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because this is all true, then whatever sola scriptura has to say concerning the need for ongoing reformation is the first thing that we need to determine. The foremost question that we must ask and answer and to answer this question, I'm going to go to Proverbs. Proverbs 22, verse 28 in particular, which says, Do not move the ancient landmarks that your fathers have set. And then again, Proverbs 23, verse 10, Do not move the ancient boundary, and do not come into the field of the orphans. And what both of these Proverbs are talking about are actual physical landmarks that were put in place when the children of Israel came into the Promised Land, as told to us in Deuteronomy 19.14, where there God said, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, 
in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord is giving, your God is giving you to possess. But if you continue reading on in that Proverbs 23 verse, what you will see was that God was warning us there is much more than just moving boundaries and stealing property. He's concerned with something much worse than that. Listen to verses 11 and 12 of Proverbs 23. Those that follow that warning against moving ancient boundaries and stealing from orphans. It says, For their Redeemer is strong. Amen? And He will plead their case against you. Bring your heart to discipline and to your, your ears to the word of knowledge. You see, those that were willing to defraud orphans, those that were willing to move ancient boundaries, they had forsaken the word of God. Their hearts had become hard towards it, which is why they could so easily, readily move those landmarks and steal that land. And God uses that reality again when through the prophet Hosea he says, The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water, Hosea 5.10. And what was it that the rulers of Judah had done that was equated, equated with moving those landmarks? They had forgotten the word of God, Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from bring, being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. And in our, church, our study through church history, it's been made clear that while there were creeds and ecumenical councils of the early centuries that got that God brought about to define and explain what Orthodox religion is, those churches were heavily influenced by their culture that they were in, by the pagan religions that they had come out of, which is why from the very early on, Reformation needed to happen. But the Reformation began long before the 1500s. The church has always needed to be reformed. The culture and traditions have always been an issue within it. The need for reformation began in the beginning. When the church was first born, within 30 years of Christ rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and sending His Spirit on the day of Pentecost, birthing the church, within 30 years of that miraculous event, the church needed reformation. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6. I marvel that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And we read there in that one verse, that first verse, one of those foundational solas, sola gratia, grace alone. The epistle to the church in Galatia was written around A.D. 48. Jesus was crucified in, in 33 A.D. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that doesn't sound like many years between A.D. 33 and A.D. 48. In fact, if I'm doing my math right, and that could be questioned because I am a product of the California government system. <laughs> that sounds like about 15 years that separated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
and this letter having been penned. Which means that that church in Galatia was even less old than that. And what Paul was saying to these saints, who could not have been saints for very long either, was that they had allowed heresy to come into their midst, to come into their hearts. They, like the children of Israel that Hosea condemned, that God spoke against in the Proverbs, had moved those ancient landmarks that he had set in place. And Paul goes on, beginning in verse 7, speaking about moving those ancient landmarks of sola gratia, of grace alone. And this is where, again, we need biblical theology, not New Testament theology, not a modern American theology. The grace of God had been demonstrated to man long before A.D. 48. We are witness to the grace of God in the life of mankind long before then. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And as you know, man committed sin. They committed treason and ate of that tree. And he didn't die on that day. God showed mercy to him and Eve and the covering that he made for them. But more importantly, he showed them their, his grace to them and allowing them to live through that day and for many more days after that. And then he spoke the ultimate grace, the eternal covenant that would, be, that would restore Adam and Eve to the family of God when he spoke to the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15 You see, God is merciful. God is a gracious God. He could have, matter of fact, He should have called a do-over the moment that Adam sinned. But He didn't. And He didn't because He desired the universe to witness his glory in the grandest way ever through the propitiation of fallen, walking dead humans in his grace being bestowed on them. The grace of God shown to them and to all creation in the eternal covenant that became manifest in the incarnation of the Son. It was the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The Son living in that perfect life in submission to His Father. And it was the Son dying a sinner's death in the place of those saints that were located in that church in Galatia. The ones that Paul were writing to. It was that grace, that specific grace that they had so quickly, so quickly walked away from when they deserted Him who had called them. And they had done this for what seemed to be a BBD, a bigger, better deal. Someone had come into their church and said that as good as the grace of God was, we've got a better way, a more religious way, a more holy way to be saved. And this is the false gospel that Paul was writing to them about in verse 7. 
when he said, which is really not another. Only there are some of you who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I should not be a slave of Christ. And interestingly enough, this is the exact manner that Joseph Smith received his false gospel. An angel came to him proclaiming a better, more accurate, more precise gospel. But do you know who preceded Joseph Smith? What religion what philosophy he had grown up in, what had happened within the Orthodox Church that Joseph Smith grew up in, what was it within the church that brought about those theological underpinnings of Joseph Smith? It was the Second Great Awakening that came out of the heretical preaching of Charles Gratison Finney. Finney was a Presbyterian minister. He has been called the father of old revivalism. And Finney rejected much of traditional Reformed theology, teaching that people have complete free will to choose salvation. He was a humanist. And he wasn't regenerate. And his ministry produced many unregenerate people who thought that they were saved. And specifically, it produced a man who coincidentally was much like Finney himself. A product of universalism and humanism that was being propagated through the Enlightenment. Joseph Smith. What did these men and what these men did was they moved the ancient landmarks that God had put in place. But the question that we need to ask is, how do we know that Finney was a, fa a false prophet and not a real prophet from God? I mean, look at all the good that came from his ministry. The Salvation, the salvation Army came from his ministry. D.L. Moody came from his ministry, just to name two. So how do we know that he was a false prophet? Well, hang on. I'm going to demonstrate that to you. See, God gave His children the Word. The same Word that He gave to the children of Israel. And in it, He gave them a means to determine if a prophet was not from Him or not. He said in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak, in my name I myself will require it of him. So to be clear, God here in his grace is foretelling the coming of his son. And that's verses 18 and 19. But then he gives them the means to determine if a prophet is from him or not, beginning in verse 20. He says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, which he speaks in the name of another God, that prophet shall die. Now you may say in your heart, 
How will we know um, the, which word the, Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh and the thing does not come about or doesn't come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. And a prophet has spoken it presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. So there it is. The way that you know a false prophet from a true one. What they say is going to happen. And it does happen. But you're thinking, but Finney was able to pull off many things that he claimed God wanted him to do. But, and this is the big but, the Word of God, the clear Word of God, always trumps, always trumps signs and wonders. Always. It has been given by Him. It is supreme over the life of the church and the believer. So much so, a few chapters earlier, God said this concerning prophets in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1-11. through 11. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which He spoke to you, saying, Let us walk after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Did you hear what God just said? God will send false prophets. God will send them. It's not an accident. And he does this for a specific reason. He does this to test you. To test you. And the test that he's giving is not graded on a curb. It's not a practice test. He says that his test is to demonstrate to you if you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And what is it that he's using as that determining factor? the way that you will know whether or not you love him or not? Verse 4. You shall walk after Yahweh your God, and you shall fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve him. Cling to him. And how should we deal with, how should we handle that person that is saying, that is trying to lead us astray? that man or woman who is presenting a false gospel, how does the Word of God say that we should deal with them? Well, beginning in verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to drive you from the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother or your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, for your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you to secretly say, let us go after other gods, whom neither you or your fathers have known, of the gods of the people who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not be willing to accept him or listen to him, and, you, and your eyes shall not pity him, and you shall not spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him and put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall, shall stone him to death because he has sought to drive you from Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
out of the house of slavery. Thus all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never do such an evil thing among you. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that we should all jump in our cars and drive down to Lakewood and string up Smiling Joel. <laughs> Neither is God any longer. The manner that you deal with them now is, is that you expel them from the body. You cast them out. You kill them in your home and in your heart. No matter if you, they are your blood relative or not. Now Paul... Paul was a man who was chosen by God for his glory and proclaiming the gospel and fulfilling the gospel mandate which was given to us all in birthing churches. And the church in Galatia was one of those. And it was made up primarily of Gentiles who had come to Christ who were now since, and so, I'm sorry, and who were now, or who were since they were Gentiles and not Jews, not Orthodox Jews anyway before coming to Christ. They had not been circumcised as their Jewish brothers in Christ were. And some men who supposedly had come to Christ from Judaism had now come into their church and told them that they needed to do more than just repent and believe and have faith. They needed to now rebuild the landmarks of that false religion of Judaism had set in place. They needed to be circumcised. And Paul confronted not only the church about this apostasy, but as we read in chapter 2 of Galatians, he had to confront one of the men who were used as the mouthpiece of God at Pentecost, verses 11 through 21 of chapter 2. But when Cephas, and if you don't know, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's verse 11. And did you hear what Paul said? He didn't say that he condemned Peter, but that Peter's actions condemned him. And in love, in front of the church, Paul confronted him in his sin. Now, saints, if your brother sins against you, we're told that we are to confront him privately. And if he will not repent, then we are to take witnesses along with us, as, far, as told to us in Matthew 18, verse 15. That's speaking about how you deal with the brother who sins against you privately, personally, alone. This is not talking about the church. This is not talking about publicly sinning. And even then, in that instance, if that person is not willing to repent, then you are to take it to the church. But this is different. This is open, defiant, and blatant sin that is done to the church, in front of the church, and it needs to be confronted openly in front of the church. Why? Because the church matters. Paul would tell his student Timothy how to deal with open sin in 1 Timothy 5.20. He said, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And this is what Paul was doing, was Saul Peter doing. And as we read beginning in verse 12 of Galatians 2, he said this, For prior to coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing the party of the circumcision. And then we read why an open rebuke is necessary in that situation. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
And the, hypocr the hypocrisy of Peter was contagious. It spread like COVID throughout the church, causing division. But Paul, Paul was the one that did something that many of us think is wrong. He openly and in front of everyone rebuked Peter. There, would, there are many who would say that this type of action is wrong, that this is unchristlike, that it is divisive. But Paul, Paul's open rebuke was not said by the word of God to be divisive. It was the open and blatant sin of Peter that was divisive. It was the sin of Peter that was causing division within the church. And the question that we should ask ourselves is why would Paul care about this? I mean, after all, he had right theology. He wasn't being swept up in this. I mean, he just could have remained silent, kept his mouth shut. And then by his actions, he could have just demonstrated proper theology through continued interaction with all the members of the church. I mean, or he, he could have just remained quiet and talked to Peter afterwards, gone to him in private and talked to him and suggested, perhaps you might be wrong in how you're handling this, brother. He could have gone to each one of the church members afterwards and told them, you know, I kind of disagree with Peter. You know, what Peter is saying and, and how he's acting is not just quite right. And to us, we think that this is the loving, the right thing. This is the manner in which Paul should have acted. Verses 14 through 16. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews? Are we Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And again, you hear Peter talking about one of those other foundational solas in those verses, sola fide, faith alone. And then Paul heads straight into the matter at hand. If the church is taught and begins to follow human traditions, the dead things of the law, saying that we must bring outside things into the church in order to be orthodox, that these things, they're not just secondary issues. They attack the very core of our faith. And Paul points out in verses 17 through 21, but if while we... But if we, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is... No, it is and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life with which I now live, the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And there, 
In those verses, we hear him defending and defining Christianity. And then yet another one of those foundational sola, sola Christos, Christ alone. He knew that all the religious laws, the dietary laws, the washings, the priestly garb, the laws that were given concerning sacrificing animals, all these things were mandated by, uh, by God in the Old Covenant. And they had no value in the New Covenant because they all pointed to Christ. And Christ is the fulfilling of all those laws. And since we are in Him, we are no longer bound under them. And if we go back to them, we justify ourselves. They had been fulfilled in the only one that could ever fulfill them. And for this reason, they were now an anathema. And for Paul, being found in Him, in Jesus Christ, that that was such a miraculous gift to Paul. Paul had big God theology. He understood the total depravity within himself. He knew that he did not choose Jesus, that on his way down from that horse, he didn't think, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to choose Jesus. He knew that because of the grace of God shown to him in the reconciliation of his soul and being made a son of God, that he was in Christ for all eternity. And this was amazing grace for Paul. That's why he was offended. And how did Peter respond to the open and public rebuke of Paul? Did he get his little feelers hurt? Did he get it mad? Cause division? Well, we're given a glimpse of how he felt toward his brother Paul. When at the end of his life, he wrote to the saints, he said, Consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. 2 Peter 3.5 that open rebuke by Peter, or to Peter, by Paul, brought restoration within the church and love for Paul in Peter. Peter knew that Paul loved him because he rebuked him. But he also knew that Paul loved the Lord more than he loved Peter. And that mattered to him. The church reformed. The church that had been formed in Galatia needed reformation. But we need to be specifically clear about what is meant by the church reformed always reforming. What the reformers meant by this. What Paul meant by this. Because we're not talking about redefining words. And that so often is the moving of ancient boundaries and landmarks. When yes is now no. When the argument over what it, what determines what sex is, is now your definition of what the word is, is. This is not reformation. This is apostasy. God, Paul, the reformers, they weren't talking about changing with the times. Just because there are now learned men who claim to have a new perspective on Paul, we're not to unhitch ourselves from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, and decide that we are New Testament people. 
that the only words in the Bible that really matter, that I have to follow, are the red letter ones. We, we are not to redefine and question biblical, foundational, clear truths, just as how many genders there are. There's only two genders, as told to us in Genesis 1, 27, male and female. And there's no such thing as a man living in a woman's body, or vice versa. God created us just as he wanted us. It's our sin nature that causes the confusion. And when we give ourselves over to our sin sin nature, this is where gender confusion comes from. And we, we need to in love, instead of affirming these people and going by whatever pronoun they tell you you must use, we need to in love tell them the truth. And we're not allowed to redefine marriage. Who and how that works. Marriage is a biblical, godly institution, not man-made. It was created by God, as told to us in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his, my, his wife, his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We're never given license to tamper with or give license to any that would validate sin. And that same, that same thing, that thing is called so-called same-sex marriage. And we, this means that we need to tell them the truth. They're not married. They have a civil union. Okay. And at the same time, we shouldn't validate those that destroy the sanctity of marriage with having sex outside of marriage either. We should tell them the truth as well. And we most especially, most specifically, should not tamper with God's church either. Trying to redefine how he has determined his church should be led by trying to confuse the clear meaning of the qualifications of an elder, the clear wording of of 1 Timothy 3.2, which says, therefore, an overseer, which that word overseer means pastor, means elder, which means bishop, same word, doesn't matter. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, And we don't have the right to try to alter what the office and function of an elder, an overseer, a bishop, a pastor, pastor, or a bishop is in order just to please people and then ordain women or homosexuals or even homosexual women to that office. Can a woman who leads other women, can they be an elder? Can a woman who leads children and women, can can they be a pastor? Just as long as they don't actually have authority or function and authority and teach men, is that okay for them to hold that office of bishop, of elder? Sure. As long as they're the husband of one wife. <laughs> and if you don't know what a husband is and a wife is, I'm going to refer you back to Genesis 2.24. And if you desire to understand what an elder or a pastor is, Hebrews 13, 17 tells us exactly what it is. It is the defining verse of what an elder or a pastor, an overseer, a bishop is, which says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage of, to you. So an elder, a pastor, that's a leader who keeps watch over the souls of God's children. A man who will be held accountable. And this is something that we, the elders, understand very strongly. We will be held accountable for how we lead you. Accountable for your souls. So this means that a person who is in charge of finances should never have the title of pastor or elder. And neither should a person who is in charge of personnel or grounds. If a church is large enough that they, they need someone over either of those things, that person is not an elder or a pastor, even though they may be in a leadership position. The defining thing of an elder is the caring for and watching over the soul of saints, which means that the person who is leading the church in the singing portion of the worship, that should be a man as well. So this brings us back to the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney. See, he was confident that the Reformed Church needed reforming, which is what he set about to do. And he did this by manipulating the salvation of God. And this is no small matter. If you think that it is, I question whether you know the Lord. Finney said that man has the right, the ability, the wherewithal to choose salvation or not. And again, this is no small matter. For contained in that single matter is the summation of all the five solas. It's either upheld or destroyed there. If God doesn't choose from eternity past those that are His elect, if He does not before the foundation of the world write the names of His children into the Lamb's book of life, he, if He alone is not the justifier, the redeemer, the sanctifier of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, then those five solas are not true. And God does not receive all the glory. Man shares in it. And this is why there was a synod adored, a canon adored, why the five points of the remonstrance were deemed heresy, and why those that hold to Arminianisms are deemed an anathema, why it should matter to us how people are told that they are saved. Don't get me wrong. Most of us in this room, we were redeemed, we were saved, Arminian, thinking that we were the ones that chose God. Because we all remember, we all remember that day that we saw God as beautiful. We all remember that day that we decided to follow Jesus. We're sure that we chose Him, which is why the clear teaching of the Bible, so, Bible, sola scriptura, must be the foundation that undergirds the church. Because it's when we read scripture that we are told that it is God that it is the first cause of our salvation. He is the one who calls us, who gives us a new heart, replacing our heart of stone. As told to us in Jeremiah 31, 33, Hebrews 8, 10, Ezekiel 36, 23 through 27. Listen to that there. God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Who is God concerned about here? People? Which has been profaned among the nations. 
and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When I through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, in our very pronoun precise generation, did you notice all the pronouns in those four uh, verses? Because you were spoken of, you were spoken of specifically 12 times. You do things. You did things. You profaned his glorious name. You did this. You, you have made yourself unclean. You did that. But did you also notice all the pronouns, those I pronouns in these verses? There's 13 of them. He is the first cause, and he is in all actually the real cause behind anything that is accomplished in our lives that has any eternal positive value. And when people are allowed to think that it is not fair if, if all people are not allowed to choose God, then God is diminished as the creator, as the holy and glorious God that the Bible says that he is. And this should matter to us if we care about the glory of God. And if we do care about it, again, this should matter to us. And if we care about the salvation of people, the state of their souls, this should matter to us as well. We should not allow people to worship a false Jesus. Allow them to think that they are on the narrow path because they go to a Six Flags Over Jesus church. When in fact, the man or even the woman who is leading that place is more than likely not redeemed themselves. You may be thinking, but, but we're on solid ground here. We, we, we know the biblical truths. We hold to the regulative principle of worship which says that the worship of God is regulated by the word of God. We hold to complementarian view of the sexes that men and women have been, get, have been given defined and complementary roles in the family and in the church as stated by the Bible. We hold to a biblical church el uh, polity, elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally ruled. We hold to the five solas and desire all things be done sola deo gloria for the glory of God alone. We're good. We don't need to continue to reform. Do we? Yes, we do. See, this was the consensus of the reformers. Because the issue is, humans have not evolved. We have not changed. We bring in the paganism of the world into our, the church. We allow human tradition to infect and even affect how the church functions. Here's a few examples of how this has happened. In most churches in America, you will find an American flag on the stage behind the pulpit. Ever see that before? That has no place in the worship service that is meant to bring glory to God alone. How about that, that little house that is in many, if not most, Southern Baptist churches that is there for birthdays and anniversaries? 
That too shouldn't be part of the worship service. Neither should be a collection, a greeting time, passing the plate, specials, dance routines, smoke machines, flag waving, rolling on the floor, barking like dogs, clucking like chickens. None of these things are biblical, and neither is calling the kiddos to the stage so that the pastor can give them a little talk before they're sent off to daycare. Which brings us to the separating the body of Christ into age-appropriate sections. We all know, we parents especially, we all know Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Amen, parents? Um, We've memorized those verses. We can quote them verbatim to our children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment that comes with a promise, so that it may be well with you, so that you may live long in the land. But do you realize that this was a command given to the children that were part of the church in Ephesus? And where the kiddos were right there with the church? Those kiddos heard the very next thing when the wives were told, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is also subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. But today, because of Charles Finney, The separation of the body of Christ is so complete, it's normal. And it's rare, it's rare to find a church that will not separate the body, that does not have what is deemed age-appropriate teaching. And again, this is just modern way of thinking. Do you realize that less than 200 years ago, in this country, the average age for a person to begin their freshman year of college, and again, in this country, I'm not talking about another country, I'm not talking about China or Japan where they're much smarter than us. In this country, less than 200 years ago, the average age for a freshman entering college was 12. That was the average age. And I'm talking about Harvard, William and Mary, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Queens, and Dartmouth. Not Liberty, not Phoenix. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is this. Has college really gotten that much harder in the last 200 years? Or have we just allowed our children to be dumbed down and expected so little of them that they are happy to comply with our expectations? These are not the only ways where we should be continuing to reform. We need to be always looking at the scriptures, always reforming ourselves. We have to. We have to. I'm telling you, church, question everything everything and I do mean everything because we have been taught by the American evangelical machine 
Because if you were to ask most people who call themselves Christians, if cleanliness is next to godliness, is that in the Bible? Or if God helps those that help themselves, is that in the Bible? Or do under others and then run as fast as you can, is that in the Bible? If you were to ask him if those things were in the Bible, most people would tell you, and people who call themselves Christians, yes. Or if you were to ask him, is the book of Zephaniah a real book of the Bible? They'd say no. If you were to ask most Christians, is sanctification a process? They would tell you that it is. Even though there is nowhere in Scripture that actually says that, that even hints that sanctification is a process. Or if you were to ask if the Bible tells us that we are to have childlike faith, most people would tell you that this is what Jesus said when he had that child on his lap. And it's not. That term, childlike faith, is never found in the Bible. Or if you were to ask most Christians if church membership were required, they would tell you, no. And even those that would say yes, by and large, they don't make the church their life, even though this is how we are supposed to understand our relationship with Christ and his body. Saints, we are to wonder, like Paul did, at the great privilege that we have in being found in Christ. Look around you. Seriously, look around you in this room. Wonder at the amazing grace that the Lord has bestowed on you in these, these flawed brothers and sisters of you, around you and in you. These people that he has covenanted and made you a covenant member of. Understand this is your family. This is your body. The body that the Lord has knit you with. And when you do, know that the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, which is the Spirit. And this then leads us back to where we started. We all need reformation daily. We need to be in the Word daily because it is the tool that God has given us to auto-correct our idol-producing hearts back to Him. We need to really, and I mean really, take a deep look at the salvation of God in our lives. If, if truly we have been saved, shouldn't that matter more than it does Shouldn't we actually take that name, Christ, of much more value than our Costco card that we use when we need to get into a store? He's adopted us. He has made us his children. He has given us his family, which is this church. And, and we are to pour ourselves into this family. We are to make this family, the local body, our family, John tells us, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God 
and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son in the world so that through him we might live. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has sent that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we are to do this. We are to love one another. You want to know how can I glorify God in my life? This is one specific way that you can do it. Love your family, your church family well. For the glory of God, do that. Because the church is his body here on earth. And he has made us members of it. It's when, it's when we esteem his church that we are truly esteeming him. And it's all for the glory of God. Sole Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for giving us this time this weekend, for allowing us the privilege of fellowshipping for so long with your body. Thank you for the fun that we've been able to have this weekend. For watching your amazing grace be manifest among us as we love on each other. We pour each other ourselves out for one another. We serve each other with gladness. Where you allow us to use the gifts that you've given us for the benefit of your body. Been, been allowed to watch as your body has enjoyed the gifts that you have given us, Lord. Father, may you be glorified greatly in your body. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand once more and let's continue our time of worship in song. I'm trying to hold it so, because I have to, because, but I don't like water without flavor. So I'm trying to um, hold it because I'm really thirsty. Wow. Christ alone, Christ alone.